It's been too long. We'll see how it goes. That we will. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. Also, our spots taken. I know. A bunch oh. of people going, oh, that's <laughs> Just a little coffee spillage. Yes, no. Everything is going wrong. Everything's going wrong. This place is hopping this morning. There's it usually is. nobody. Especially this early. It's yeah. Right, it's usually just us. A bunch of early birds in here. Covenant's made simple chapter five by our friend Jaunty. Jaunty. Yeah, so we're getting into Moses. Uh, Moses and obedience. covenant obedience and what that looks like. Mm. When you think of the Mosaic Covenant, do you see it as pretty different from what we've talked about already? Because I know that um, he gets into it a little bit, but uh, there's definitely some uh, debate, discussion, disagreement about wh- how exactly you fit this into the rest of the covenant sure. structure. No, I, I don't think that I do. Um, so I had not yet read the Old Testament in, in its entirety, or even, I don't think at the time, the Pentateuch, when I first read covenant, or, uh, Christ of the Covenants by Robertson. And I think that really influenced my perception of how all the covenants relate together. So I, I don't I, I've never struggled with perceiving this one as unique from the others, only because I had not developed any of my own opinions prior to reading that book. Um, but yeah, huh. flesh that out for me. What what do people usually find? Well, yeah, we'll get in. We'll get into maybe the more like reform debates about it. Obviously, outside of the reform world, you have pretty significant. Even when people talk about the covenants, mm-hmm. um, most people see. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, these sorts of things, as if they are uh, basically just, it's it's just uh, focused on works, right? Like, it's just focused on doing, it's basically, um, and this is, has been uh, one particular more modern, and I think very wrong view, but he brings it up in the book, um, within even some of the modern reformed world, in the last, like, 40 years, not mm-hmm. not uh, really before that. Um, but this idea that uh, basically the Mosaic Covenant is a reworking of the covenant of works um, that was made with Adam. Mm-hmm. Back in Genesis, yeah. And um, it's not true. It's, it's not, I mean, it's not, it's not a good, it's not a good way to look at it, but I, uh, I think it's important to note that it's not a good way to look at it because um, you you can I think you can get to that place because there is more of an emphasis on obedience and what obedience looks like when it comes to uh, the Mosaic Covenant. However, um, all of that is all, all the way all throughout, and he, and he's going to get into this. Um, you still have all of the same kinds of covenant promises that God has already made. Mm-hmm. You have the same emphasis that ultimately it is God who is working in these things. So even though obviously there's a, an involvement of the people, it is still clearly the work of God, right? Like it's still clearly his work. And um, it, it has direct parallels to um, all the other covenants, obviously because it is an outworking of the covenant of grace mm. checks out man yeah yeah I'm just trying to refresh myself with at least his first few pages here it's been a month at least but uh, I do see right away I'm 69 there and talking once again about this idea of first God will give them paradise 
then he's going to, well, he will also increase their numbers, and then finally, he's going to be present with them. So again, those three Ps, which have characterized previous covenants, according to Mr. Rhodes, paradise, people, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, pe paradise, presence, and people, that's it, yeah. Yeah, so God, um, in a sense, is present with them, right? So, uh, you know, he he's present with them in leading them out of Egypt um, in a cloud and pillar of fire. Um, he's present in that he's present on the mountaintop, uh, Mount Sinai, as he gives them the law. He speaks from the mountain. Um, but uh, something just interesting is that, you know, in the Mosaic Covenant, you have God working toward a more permanent presence with the people, right? So uh, when, when Moses receives the commandments on Mount Sinai, he also receives commandments about the building of the tabernacle, where God is going to dwell with the people for good right like he's mm -hmm. he's going to be with them um, at least more permanently mm -hmm. or in a more direct way than maybe had been evident to them before yeah. and so not only do you have the same promises you actually have them kind of carried escalating or carried a little yeah. further yeah yep. so they're they they continue to progress in a sense and they mm -hmm. continue to be be worked out in a greater way than they were before mm -hmm. and that's going to happen again obviously with i mean with uh with the Davidic covenant, Davidic covenant with David yeah. and, and the building of the temple yeah, by Solomon, um, this this is going to keep moving yeah. ultimately in the direction of the incarnation right. uh, where, where Christ dwells directly with us and in the, the giving of the Holy Spirit after the ascension. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, it's just, I, I think it's important to see then, yes, there's continuity um, all the way through and we're also kind of taking a step up in a sense right mm -hmm. it's escalating at the same time for sure for sure and to your previous point on, on the initiator here who's in charge who's in control who's the operator on 68 I can see your book and mine both have the same space highlighted there but yeah love love the last few sentences here in that paragraph no uh, uh, rescue is not a reward for your good behavior uh, instead, God comes to save because, you guessed it, he's promised Abraham that he would. And as we saw earlier, he had literally sworn on his own life. His own covenant has bound him to act. That's, that's super cool. <laughs> so Johnny works into the, the curses then. And this is, again, where I think that sometimes people uh, fall off a little bit because they, they understand the you know, the curses that are brought alongside of the covenant as somehow fundamentally different uh, than what's seen elsewhere. Uh, but we already saw with Abraham, for instance, that mm -hmm. there was a curse that was pronounced as God in, as a flaming pot uh, as uh, moves through these uh, animals that have, right. been, uh, have been cut in half. Um, there is a, an inherent curse uh, that's spoken toward that is that is spoken forth um, in in that place and so um, so that's not actually a, a discontinuity that's actually continuous too mm -hmm. um, but the curses do become more explicit and take on maybe a different a, a little bit of a uh, again a more escalated nature mm -hmm. uh, along with the promises right God is more present he's more directly uh, present with the people of Israel mm -hmm. through the Mosaic Covenant um, 
that also means that there's going to be a higher judgment, a greater judgment for the people as they reject him. And, and so that's where it comes, right? So, uh, you know, he says, first God threatens to reverse the blessing of being a great people. And so, and this is, uh, this is coming out of Deuteronomy 28, uh, if you haven't read it. Uh, it. It's really interesting to read because if you read it, you just see everything that's going to happen to Israel later on, right? Everything that happens to Israel in the exile, uh, everything that you read about, just the, the really, I mean, truly horrific things that take place. Mm-hmm. Um, all of it is done uh, according to what was told Israel, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, like it says it outright uh, in Deuteronomy 28. It, it explains everything that's going to happen, and it does. Um, that's exactly what happens when the people reject God. Maybe it'd be important to say it, it does happen, but even when it does happen, it's after a long time of rejecting God, right? So, like, even, yeah. even here, God is gracious because of his patient, covenant. Yeah. He's yeah. patient. He's long-suffering with the people. Um, and it's only after it's continuous, and there's mm-hmm. a, just a refusal to repent that finally um, God does actually pour out these curses on them. Mm. But there's always this sense, even in the curses, there's always the opportunity for repentance, right? There's always, anytime, anytime that there is a judgment, anytime that wrath is poured out, there is, in essence, even if it's not spoken, an opportunity to repent. So you see this in the story of Jonah, for instance, when Jonah goes preaching, and all he preaches is, Judgment is coming. <laughs> Wrath is coming. Like, you're all going to be destroyed in 40 days. Um, that's all. That's it, right? Like, that's all he says. He doesn't say, so you should repent. Here's what you do. He doesn't say anything. Right. Um, but the people know that the statement that there's going to be judgment means, hey, we need to, right. we need to repent. Yep. That's what we're going to do. For sure. Uh, every, everybody knows. That's where it's supposed to draw Hmm. So there's curses related to the people, right? The people are going to be destroyed. Um, they're they're not going to be able to bear children, right? There's God will give them infertility. Um, children are, are seen as a blessing from the Lord, and and a people that's far from Him, He says He's not going to multiply. Uh, they're going to be enslaved. They're going to be taken from them, mm-hmm. uh, taken from their parents, etc. Um, he says there's curses related to place, and so um, you know this is uh, famine and. Uh, you know, crops won't grow, and the the land itself often we're told will fight against Israel. I um, mean, it will fight back. It will it will revolt against those who try to cultivate it. Um, it's it's the taking over of the land itself, right? So the land of promise, the physical land of promise that Israel was given, um, it's that being taken away too. Uh, so uh, you see all of this again, kind of you know, escalating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, no doubt about it. Yeah, I did find that to be a really compelling part of this chapter in retrospect now on just uh, um, all the curses being related to these same three categorical things that we've been walked through the previous chapters on the promises regarding these covenants and to see them now. First, God threatens to reverse the blessings of a great people. Then the curses are related to a place. And then finally, they're in Deuteronomy 28, you know, whatever, 63 and 64. Um, we see verse 63 specifically, God will delight in bringing destruction. Oh, wait, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm going to talk about his paradise. 
The Paradise is is uh, with the land too, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That is yep. it's connected okay. to it. But he does make a good point that, um, and I think this is, I think this is really important um, that the the reversal of God's presence is not a reversal in that God is not present. It's that he simply becomes present as an enemy. Sure, right. his disposition towards them. Yeah. yeah, and that's so important. This is uh, this is so central to so much of the Bible's teaching about judgment, about wrath, um, and about the presence of God. Um, that God is always present. Right? He's omnipresent. He is present everywhere at all times in every way. Um, however. Uh, that this is this is why covenant and your covenant relationship to God matters so much, is that um, your your relationship to Him by covenant will dictate what that presence is like, right? Like it's um, whether you are an enemy or you are a friend, whether you're an enemy or you're a member of the family, right? That's that's the difference, and so and so God becomes an enemy of the people as they reject Him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether you're lying to the serpent in Genesis 3 or the, the serpent crusher in Genesis 3. Yeah. yeah, right. We talked about the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. Really, mm-hmm. that's that's the same thing, kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to highlight, he, he says, this is uh, on page 71 at the bottom. He says, as time goes on, God gives more and more detail to his people. Although the external form of the covenant and its blessings and curses might change, the underlying reality remains the same. That's huge, right? That's huge as we try to understand scripture and try to build upon these things. We don't want to go in trying to read discontinuity uh, because that's actually going to cause us to miss some of the important parts where there is continuity all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it'll just you know, uh, kind of distract us. And this is where he gets into the nature of the the conditions within this covenant um, and the differences of opinion that we talked about a little bit ago. So mm-hmm. there have been, uh, within the modern reform world, there are kind of two views. Uh, there is, within the last... Uh, again, I want to say it's like 40 years. Sure, so fairly recent, yeah. Very recently, um, there has been uh, uh, a movement, especially out of Westminster uh, Seminary in California. So Westminster West. Ed Welch and uh, uh, all those guys, yeah. Yeah, I don't know uh, about, you know, Welch necessarily, but uh, guys like uh, Meredith Klein... Uh, guys like uh, uh, oh I'm blanking on I'm blanking on uh, some of the names but anyway there there has been this idea uh, that basically the Mosaic Covenant is uh, going back to the uh, covenant with Adam that it's going back to the covenant of works it's kind of a it is a, a re- telling of that to emphasize that point to emphasize the futility of it all right um and uh the you know and by the way if i'm not super versed in this stuff um but uh if you 
want to know more, if you uh, find uh, you know friend of the podcast, Andrew Smith, uh, he has a podcast called Once for All Delivered. Uh, but if you find him on Twitter especially, he's done some pretty significant, and maybe on Once for All Delivered as well, um, he's done some pretty significant takedown of some of these views. Um, and, you know, it's very often, so this is the, the you know, sometimes called the, you know, republication, um, that the, the mosaic covenant, the laws given are, is a republication of uh, what God gave to Adam. But he's done some pretty good takedown of Meredith Klein and a lot of the, the aberrant theology, um, the, uh, a lot of this is very tied to the, you know, uh, the idea of you know kind of a radical what is referred to now as a radical two kingdoms theology R2K theology uh, that again is you know Michael Horton uh, would would be in this camp I believe oh really uh, yeah okay. yeah so a lot of again just a lot of the guys that are out out at Westminster West um, and it is, is is Westminster West the one with is Welch there is that where Tripp is or okay yeah. I don't know you know, when I hear Westminster that's all I think of is uh, those two guys in counseling so I yeah. guess I haven't studied them extensively right and I don't know that they're a proponents of this, this right yeah, yeah. so this is more you know sure. in, more specific. in the biblical yeah. theology departments right um, but it's this is a I mean again it's a modern view this is something that is is um, very new. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Jaunty, who uh, you know, is in a clearly does not hold to clearly does not hold to yeah. right. He, yep. he gives this little bit where he's like, well look, here's what they here's what some of these guys think. Like he wants it he clearly wants to be nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah he's winsome. Yeah. <laughs> he is right. Nuanced. Yes. No, he is. He's being uh, you know winsome winsome and nuanced. Uh, but then he just jumps into um, what is again, the historic view. Um, you know, he, he quotes Herman Bobbink um, saying that the covenant with Israel was essentially no other than that with Abraham. The covenant on Mount Sinai is and remains the covenant of grace. Mm. And, uh, you know, he says that one of the strongest arguments for this is what we've been talking about, mm-hmm. that those promises three, yeah. that are given every time are the same promises. Mm. Uh, God so God is speaking in the same way to the people. And it may be a little bit more difficult to us to follow exactly why or how these all connect mm-hmm. because it does get a bit more in-depth. It gets a little bit more complicated. But all that's new, all that's happening is, a again, an escalation or a movement. Uh, but uh, it, it's a movement out or a growth out from that same right same uh, ultimate uh, covenant at the bottom. Progression that we've seen, yeah. He does have that funny little story at the end of that paragraph there, which is like a, a, a dig, obviously, at the former, formerly laid out theology. And he's just like, he says, imagine telling a father telling his son that he would be given a bike on his sixth birthday and then come the morning of the big day, announcing that the bike was now dependent on absolutely faultless behavior. A terrible father. Uh-huh. That would be really not fun right. if you're the six-year-old. Yeah, what does it say? This is, you know... Um, one of the things we should always do is when you're when you're trying to work out some kind of theological system, it's important to think what does it say about God, mm-hmm. right? What does it say about the character of God if sure. He is like this, and is that consistent with how God has revealed Himself elsewhere in Scripture? Right. Um, and I just can't see how this would be right that um, He would do that. Um, uh, he goes on to say, similarly, there does seem to be the provision for forgiveness of sin, even within 
the Mosaic Covenant itself. This is so important because a lot of people, and this is just true outside of the Reformed world too. Yep. So just within broad evangelicalism, um, you have just this assumption that, well, the old, usually it's the whole Old Testament. <laughs> it's, it's usually like the whole Old Testament. Well, that was all about works. It was all about like doing the right thing mm-hmm. and that didn't work. And so then Jesus had to come and change everything, right? Sure. Um, and, and so the New Testament is about grace. The Old Testament is, and this, you know, this yep. is, it's basically, um, you know, just uh, uh, a way of, you know, saying, well, that Old Testament God. I can hear Andrew right now guy. railing on Andy Stanley if he was I here. Know. I can <laughs> we get Mr. Sweeney back. Yeah, Andrew's not here. Uh, but if he was here, that's what he would was, be saying. He would be railing against Andy Stanley. 100%. 100%. Uh, yeah, no, I... I don't know. Oh, so so within again within you know broad evangelicalism, you see this as a, a disconnection of of you know the old and new testament. But the emphasis that the old testament is about works, it's about doing the right thing, uh, and it's about like you have to keep these things perfectly. People read about the law and they say, well, look, God made said that you have to keep these things perfectly, which He did say you have to keep them whole. Mm-hmm. But part of that law includes sacrifices mm-hmm. for the forgiveness of sins right. to remove guilt to remove right. shame um, so so part of the law is teaching the people how to repent and be forgiven mm-hmm. from the beginning right mm-hmm. like that's that is that is part and parcel of all of it and right. so you can't say that this was about some kind of perfect obedience right because literally part of it is here's what you do when you fail here's right. what you do when you're not perfectly obedient typologically looking to how that would be consummated in the new covenant exactly yeah. yep yep for sure I'm, I'm curious at the bottom of that paragraph on, on the Leviticus sacrifices and festivals and all that. Um, he references uh, atonement, and he talks about its English English word, at one mint. He uses that phrase. Then um, that is a little bit, if I can borrow a term, triggering in my mind, only because I've heard, uh, I don't know if you've seen, I think it's the second American gospel movie, Christ Crucified, where they talk about Richard Rohr and his perspective on uh, substitutionary atonement or the lack thereof. And he uses this argument. He's of, a bad guy. Well, yes, he's he, a bad yes. Dude, we he's don't love Richard Rohr, um, but he uses the same argument where he's like, "Hey, here's the English translation," and and I've made fun of him because I'm like, "Well, why do you care about the English translation of this word which we're using from a prior language?" So I'm curious. Do, do you have issue with him? Because Mark Dever does the same thing in one of his books where he uses the English term "at one minute" to say, "Well, atonement accomplishes this happening." Yep. Um, yeah. Thoughts on that? I don't know the actual like I don't know the like the history of the word right like I don't I did not know this is like the etymology of the word sure <laughs> uh, and maybe maybe it is maybe it's not I, I assume it is because John is saying it yeah yep yep I assume they've done their due diligence so Richard because uh, I have not on that um, but uh, and and that's not like this is true right like one of the, like what is atonement in part it is the reconciliation mm-hmm. of two Praise parties God. right yeah. so yep. so it is the bringing of these two together um, now Richard Rohr and his creepy weird wacky you know yep. new age mysticism stuff yep. is obviously uh, like his Love idea base, of oneness yeah. right or being united is going the to universal be, Christ yes yeah. yeah oh right it's going to be like right. weird almost Hindu esque kind of stuff right yeah uh, so that's not that's definitely not what <laughs> we're getting at here right so John T. Rhodes is not citing Richard Rohr. Okay, <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> breaking news. Believe it or not, Richard Rohr did not come up with the word atonement. <laughs> okay, I feel safe for using it now. That is that is great. <laughs> gotcha. 
Gotcha. Okay. Well, sorry for the one off there. Just curious. No, it's good, man. It's good. So, uh, now, um, if it's true that like the you know the obedience of the people um, is a part of why they may or may not be cursed right in this covenant that that covenant obedience matters and that God um, you know works in this way saying well if you obey here's what's going to happen if you don't obey here's what's going to happen um, doesn't that mean that you know works? are somehow the mm. determining factor mm. of conditional. God's grace, yeah. right? Does that mean that God's grace is, is conditional upon the acting of sinful people? Right. Are you asking me? Oh, I'm asking. Yeah, oh, I'm, just, I'm asking. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in part it goes back to what we talked about last chapter on the idea of necessary versus meritorious preconditions yes. there. Um, so the idea, to, to use that analogy again, he talks about, hey, going into a stadium for, for a football game or a soccer game, you need to have a ticket. That's a necessary condition. You have to have that. However... Uh, somebody else can pay for your ticket, and you can be there. And so, by necess- you know, uh, by necessity, you still have the ticket, but you didn't accomplish what it took to get there. And so, similarly, uh, yeah, holiness holiness is required to be in God's presence, and we see that all the way through the Bible. Um, like the Mosaic Covenant, yeah, further emphasizes the idea that God hates sin, and so he doesn't. He can't be around sin, which is open rebellion against himself and rejection of his character and his law and his decree. And so, um, it is expected that we would be obedient. Which, of course, the New Testament, we know, because of the Spirit, we can be truly obedient. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, what would you say? Pick up where I'm leaving off there. Yeah, well, I just, you know, I think so. Sometimes, you know, and part of this is just the nature of. Uh, you know, um, this side being this side of the debates during the Reformation, and and there is this sense that we, you know, um, we want to be absolutely clear on sola fide, and that's good and right and true. Right. Uh, but I wonder if sometimes we have almost a kind of like Hegelian approach. So you know, the Hegelian method, uh, Hegel, you know, is this idea that you know everything, the way that history moves, and the way that things progress um, is that you have a a thesis, an antithesis, and then those two kind of converge in some way and become uh, a synthesis. And uh, I think sometimes we, we come to this and we see this like strong dichotomy between, okay, there's faith, there's works. And there's this dichotomy between them and we have to synthesize them somehow. Mm. Um, But I don't know that that's actually um, quite, Correct. I mean, it's true that they can be synthesized. It's just that I don't think that they come at odds with each other, right? So when you just think about maybe a more, you know, natural, organic metaphor, you think about the organic connection between the roots of a tree and its fruit. Sure. Um, Sound like James right now. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it would be wrong, like it is wrong to say, oh, well, the fruit is the roots. Right, and this is what at different times certain Christian traditions have tried to do. Right, sure. to say no, this, the fruit is the roots. The fruit is where where the life comes from. Mm-hmm. 
okay, well, that's not true. So you want to be careful. Obviously, that's important. Uh, but it's not wrong to say that these things are directly connected. Right. There's an organic whole and unity between them. You don't have one without the other. Sure. Um, and in any kind of a healthy tree with healthy roots, you're going to see fruit, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the fruit this is, is going this is John to 15, same exactly. exact thing. Yep, yep. Exactly. And so um, I just wonder if we don't have to necessarily dichotomize them quite sure. as Put much as odds. we do. Yeah, yeah. yeah we just, we, we very often try to put them in all and that's I mean it's not just us mm-hmm. scripture presents them that way sometimes right mm-hmm. so that we you know have to be challenging someone mm-hmm. um, this is you know you have this both in Paul and in James yep. um, that's kind of almost contrasting but in both showing how these things work together um, and so you know there's we don't want to remove it and I would say you know it's important to remember the good of obedience in a time where you know, um, license and licentiousness is antinomianism yeah. is the norm. Mm-hmm. It's the norm across the board. Right. Um, it's important to remember, no, that uh, we have been called to obedience. Mm-hmm. We've been and we've been brought to life so that we will live Praise according God. to Dude, you know his precepts. That goes hand in hand. Um, I, I follow Desiring Cat on Instagram for whatever reason, and uh, they just put out a Piper quote yesterday that I just, I'd never heard before, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I loved it, and he talks about, I, this gets at a broader understanding of, like, is true freedom the ability to do uh, anything, you know, have boundless, guideless, completely unbridled control, or is it adhering to the right rules and that sort of thing, and he says, true freedom, in this quote, he's like, true freedom is um, doing what you want to do and not regretting it a thousand years later, Yeah, I'm like, whoa, that is just so, like, yeah, change change what I desire to the, because it turns out my creator knows a whole lot better what's going to bring me life and joy and satisfaction versus my perception of it and that goes hand in hand with what we're talking about right now right. yeah yeah so he you know he under this is under a section on page 77 called the purpose of obedience he you know talks about the different purposes of obedience why we're to obey um, he says first most importantly it honors the God who rescued us so obviously you know it glorifies God that's First and most important, always the most important. Um, second, he says, um, he, he kind of goes to, uh, you know, Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Um, and other places where, you know, it shows us that it brings us this joy. is good, it's yeah. right, it's, yeah. it's for, and you, you know this, right? If you're a believer, you know this, mm. right? You walk according to the way that the Lord has set out in Scripture, and you're, you're joyful, right? You love it. You're. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a burden. It's right. not. Uh, it's not. It doesn't crush you. Right. It's not something that you feel like. Oh, I'm. I hope I don't upset God today by right. like stepping on this and and failing in this way. You just no. It's you've been given a new heart, so you should desire. To do what He wants you to do, you should desire to be like Christ. You should desire Him and His glory, and then you do it, and it's it's just awesome, right? Like you you love it. It's it's clearly how you're made to live. It's how you're made to to act and live uh, according to His law, and so. Um, you know, we don't want to see obedience as this like burden, right? As a, a as some kind of like weight around our necks. No, the like the burden of Christ is light. It's it's uh, yoke is easy. You know, yeah, right. His yoke is easy. It's 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 still a yoke. It still is obedience. It still is uh, you know direction and submission. Yeah, submission. 
but it's good and right, and it's what you're made for, right? right. It's where you fit. It's actually where you fit. Um, when you are at odds with the law of God, you're right. you're fighting against the way that the world is made. You're fighting against the way that you've been made right. to live and act. And you're fighting against God, who yep. you know it is uh, is. Not a winning Put in the strategy. Place of your enemy. Yeah, it's not. not, not. <laughs> Turns out, it's spoiler not, alert. Believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. He, spoiler alert. You lose. Yeah. <laughs> you lose that one. Lo siento. Um, yeah. No. I love. So yeah. First reason: obedience to God. Just obey God. A sufficient reason right there. But secondly, because it's good for your joy. And then he says in the next page. Thirdly, it also blesses the world. And I think this goes hand in hand with um, uh, the cultural mandate that we saw in Genesis, where Adam and Eve are tasked with representing God as His mirrored image to the rest of the world and being for human flourishing. And good things should become even more good things because of their leadership over them. And similarly, yeah, Rhodes is arguing here. He actually roots it in Exodus 19, the argument that our obedience should lead to the flourishing of the people around us and, and the places around it. Everything should be more beautiful because it's in line with God's natural order and, and vision for what the world is supposed to look like, which is cool. Yeah. I mean, heck, I even see it like in the microcosm of my family you can you can see how like when when the husband in the household is being obedient to the lord and and you know chasing after him that has direct ramifications for the rest of his family for everyone yes precisely yeah, yeah it's good for everybody uh, yeah absolutely and and you see this time and time again that you know uh Israel was always supposed to be a light, right? God was going to bless Abraham so that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a there's always this constant theme of a blessing that overflows uh, from God's people to mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Uh, most primarily, we see that in salvation itself, right? In in the the possibility for others contagiousness to be, yeah. right yep. well yep. and and for others to join in the covenant right like mm-hmm. to become right. covenant members of the right household across. of yep. god absolutely um, so we see that part of it um, but then we also just see in general like the the way that god blesses his people becomes a blessing to others you think about um how you see this in the story of joseph in genesis mm-hmm. um, he you know uh he becomes a blessing to others. The, mm-hmm. He becomes God's provision for others in a time of, of famine. And this is that's prophesied over all of Israel multiple times, but they're going to be a blessing to the rest of the nations around them. That's right. That's supposed yeah. to be a picture of what right. Israel was supposed to be. Now, right. Israel doesn't do that, right? The, the older son, the firstborn right. of God, which is Israel, defaults on his, yeah, yep. it defaults, you know, it does not right. uh, do as he's supposed to do. And so you need a new Israel, right? Yep. You need, uh, the older must serve the younger, right? Mm-hmm. So you need, uh, you know, uh, it, not a second born, right? The firstborn, uh, but who is second born in time to come along and to fulfill everything. Um, that is there, and we're going to see that um, as Christ comes on the scene. But um, before we close this chapter, I, I just want to point out his, his this great line where he just says, um, he's talking about the, how we're supposed to be obedient, we're supposed to look different from the world mm-hmm. and be holy, and that that is, uh, that is part of the mission of God's people. Um, so he quotes from First Peter 2, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify uh, glorify God on the day of visitation. And he uses this phrase. I just think it's a great phrase uh, that I want to talk about. He says, holiness is mission-minded. So holiness is mission-minded. Um, to be holy, sometimes, man, again, we put these dichotomies in place where it's like, well, the, there's the really missional people 
right? People who really, really want other people to know God, and so they contextualize in the sense that, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna be just like water things down. I need to be just like everybody else. I need because they won't respect me otherwise. That's right. I don't want to be holier than thou, and so I'm not gonna follow everything God says. Look, I'm, you know, I'm just as much a failure as everybody else. Right. And obviously, some of that is like there's partial truth. Yeah. There's some wisdom and partial truth. But ultimately, one of the main ways that God has called us to evangelize be missional yeah, to yeah. evangelize is that actually our lives look distinctly different right like our families don't operate in the same way that that the families of the world do right um, our community our household different yeah, our yeah. household the, the, you know um, our uh, our uh, sexual practices our uh, business practices our whatever like Financial all of it yeah, yeah it's yep, supposed yep. to look different and be distinct not just to be like everybody else mm-hmm. yeah no that's that's fantastic and then yeah I, he puts that so much more we're supposed to stick out like a sore thumb like we're yeah we're supposed to be different which is just yeah a cool idea and yeah, certainly counterintuitive to a lot of the Jesus movements that we're seeing, um, which really do emphasize contextualization, whether that's um, overseas or here in the United States, you know, used as a justification for maybe not outright saying, you know, I'm going to disobey God or disregard God here, but I'm going to get really soft on it. And yeah, I practice that personally, but I'm not going to do that publicly because, you know, you're fearful of how that's going to be perceived or reacted to. Which, yeah, counterintuitive. Hi, man. Mm, oh, right in line with that. Spiritual chameleons are of no use to anyone. That's great. Oh, yeah. That is great. Yeah, no, next chapter David and the Covenant King.